0: My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at the Journey and we we did just complete a pretty lengthy and awesome sermon series about the greatness of God's grace and now we're in a little three-part mini series here at the Journey called Defining Moments. Defining Moments, choosing to join God in and where in where and how, sorry. In where and how he's at work in the world. Defining Moments. Last week Lou did kind of walk us through the entire story of the Bible and 35 minutes. It was pretty sick in a good way and uh, reminded us of the larger story of God in the world, his work of bringing his, his good and just and peaceful kingdom to earth as it is in heaven and how we are part of that. Whatever we're doing in our own time and place is part of this larger work of God in the world. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some particular moments along the way in scripture where God's people had a choice and a defining moment to step into what God was doing in the world at a particular time, and today we're going to turn to a a defining moment in the early church in the book of Acts in the New Testament. We're going to look at the church of Antioch, which is uh, in Acts chapter 11 and page 780 in most of the Pew Bibles, if you're using that for reference. Now, I'm curious, how many of you were part of the journey back in 2013, five years ago? A handful. A handful. So we actually did a a whole sermon series on the book of Acts back then, and so some of what I'm going to say, I I did say back then, uh, you may remember it, or you may not remember it at all, and I don't take that personally, because you also probably don't remember what you ate for dinner that night, but it nourished you and kept you alive. Uh, But how many of you were, were actually not around, were not part of the journey in 2013? Yeah, so that's almost everybody. Which kind of, I think, will prove my point. We're talking today about a shifting church. A church that is shifting and changing and on the move. So we'll look at Antioch, but before we get there, I just want to look at the very beginning of the book of Acts. And these are the final words that Jesus spoke to his followers while he was on earth. His final words found in Acts chapter 1.8. It'll be up on the screen. He said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is really an outline of the whole book of Acts. Jesus has has given grace to his followers and has charged them now with sharing that grace and being witnesses of it to everyone, starting in Jerusalem. This was a group of people that was in Jerusalem and was centered there. So they're to testify to Jesus' grace there where they are. And to be witnesses to Jesus in their surrounding area, to their neighbors that were like them that they got along with in Judea, and to their neighbors that were not like them that they did not get along with in Samaria, all of their neighbors, and then beyond that to the very ends of the earth, so crossing really any geographical or cultural barrier with the good news about God's grace. That's what Jesus called his people to do and to be about. But early on in the beginning of Acts, the church gets a little stalled in Jerusalem. There's an amazing movement of God that happens there, people are experiencing Jesus in a great way in Jerusalem, but they kinda get stuck there, things don't really get going right away. It's sort of an inertia in the early church. If you know one of Newton's laws, an object at rest will tend to stay at rest unless acted upon by some outside force. And there was some inertia in this early church, they were kinda sticking to where they were, and the outside force that sort of propelled them out of that ended up being some terrible persecution and suffering that caused followers of Jesus to have to kind of flee and run for their lives, and that scattered them all over the place, which actually ended up propelling forward what God wanted in the first place. And so we meet some of these people and pick up there in the story of Antioch. So again, this is Acts chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 19 and read on through to the end. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. and One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Holy Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul." So we meet some of the people who've been scattered by the persecution that, that got followers of Jesus spread out all over the place. And some of them traveled to Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. These were all major cities in the Roman Empire at the time, but they were spreading the word still only among Jews, talking to the people that were like them, who were their own kind, so to speak. And all these cities had a Jewish population in them. Antioch at the time was the third largest city In the Roman Empire, and it had a Jewish quarter, kind of a neighborhood that Jews had settled in and built up for themselves, kind of like Chinatown in Boston. And so far, these early followers of Jesus were speaking still just to the people who were fellow Jews like them, until at some point, some unknown time, some unknown people, really, just some men from Cyprus and Cyrene go to Antioch, and they began to speak to Greeks also, telling them about the Lord Jesus. And these Greeks were full-on Gentile people. So far, the church had some people who spoke Greek but were really Jewish, or some people with a Greek background who converted to Judaism, but these were full-on Greeks, full-on Gentiles, very little in common with Jewish people. Different culturally, different background, different foods, different religious practices, uh, many of which Jewish people would have found pretty repulsive. Uh, There was a major crossing of barriers, a major crossing of cultures that took place here, and it was a big thing that happened we see the real proactive sharing of the gospel across cultures for the first time. People willingly just sharing the grace they've received with the people who God puts in front of them. Up to this point in Acts, there's been a couple cases where someone shared about the grace of Jesus with a Gentile, but God really had to like, move heaven and earth and almost force people to do it. So there's the case of Philip, who the Holy Spirit more or less teleported, it's basically what happened, to put in front of an Ethiopian guy and say, here, tell him about Jesus. And then the Apostle Peter, right before this story, got caught up in a trance and saw a vision from the Holy Spirit and was directed step by step to a Roman soldier and basically had no choice but to tell him about Jesus. But here, for the first time, we have just regular believers, whose names we don't even know, just realizing they've received grace from God, and that grace was meant for all people, and so they just, people who get grace, passing on grace to other people across cultures, across boundaries, and that's really how it's supposed to happen, how it's meant to be, and this is a profound moment and a turning point, a defining moment in church history, and really in world history, because this is the point where the church becomes not just a Jewish thing or a sect of Judaism, but a thing for all people in all cultures, in all nations, which is the thing that God had intended all along and continues to be about to this day. It's a profound moment. We don't know who did it. We know who didn't do it. It was not the apostles. It was not the pillars of the early church. It wasn't Peter, James, and John. Uh, they didn't have some strategic plan to go to Antioch. And In fact, they had a lot of cultural hang-ups that made them hesitate to talk to people who weren't like them. But God just did not want to wait around for them to get their stuff together. And so he gets the word out through these ordinary, faithful people, and the world and the church are changed forever. There's a huge shift that happens here at Antioch. One, the demographics of the church begin to shift considerably and forever. No longer is this just the culturally Jewish people, community, but it's a community that is multi-ethnic, multicultural, for the first time at Antioch. And it's interesting, in verse 26, we're told the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And I don't think that's random. I don't think that's a throwaway detail by the author Luke or a bit of trivia like, hey, fun fact, did you know that the first people who were called Christians were called that at Antioch? It's actually very significant that it happens right now and right here at this moment. When for the first time we have a community made up of people that transcends cultural boundaries And any other kind of man-made construct that divides people and categorizes people and separates people, they come together into one community. It's here where they get named Christian because there needs to be a new name for this people. This is a new thing. This is something different that doesn't fit into any of the man-made categories that existed for people at that time. And that suffix at the end of Christian, I-A-N, it's really the suffix that that categorized nations or particular groupings of people. So the people of Egypt were Egyptian, the people of Syria were Syrian, people of Italy were Italian, and so on. Well, who do these people belong to? Nobody knew what to make of them. This was something else, something different. And so they needed a new name. And ultimately, they were the people defined by belonging to Christ. And so they became Christian. It's really a beautiful word beautiful thing. They were something different, something else as a community brought together across other categories. And Christians are to be something else and something different and not to be narrowly confined to the ways the world has of dividing and categorizing people. It transcends to a lot of things. A couple of weeks ago, Tim Keller wrote a great op-ed in the New York Times talking about our current political climate and the polarization and all that. And it's titled, How do Christians fit in our two-party system? They don't. They don't. Not to say that we shouldn't participate in it or come alongside or even affiliate in some way as being good citizens, but ultimately, none of those categories encapsulate what the kingdom of God is all about. They don't. And we're not to fully throw our weight behind those things because the church Christians are to be something else, something different, and something I think the world and our country drastically need right now. To be Christian. Now, these Jewish believers in Antioch—they didn't stop being Jewish. That was still a a very important part of their heritage, and where they came from, and who they were. The Greek believers in Antioch—they didn't stop being Greek. They didn't stop enjoying great Greek food, for example. Hallelujah! They didn't have to do that. But as a community, and as a unit, as a as a thing now together, they were something else. Something different, an identity marker that transcended anything else. Christian, belonged to Christ. And this is a big thing. It was no longer a Jewish thing. It was an all-nations thing, an all-people thing, which is exactly what God had in mind the whole time and still does. So not only did the demographics of the church begin to change at Antioch, but so did the center of the church. They have a shifting center of the Christian church, So far, it had been at Jerusalem. Jerusalem was kind of the center of everything. It's where the apostles were. It's where most of the believers were from. It's where things started. It's where all the leadership was, the the authority, the decision-making. Everything kind of flowed out of Jerusalem. It was the center of everything. But no longer. Things began to move, and Antioch would become a center. Three times in our passage today, it emphasizes that great numbers of people were brought to the Lord at Antioch. This church became a force, really, And would go on to become a center of Christianity for many centuries. And a lot of great church leaders and theologians who shape a lot of how we understand God came out of Antioch. Antioch became the place that sent missionaries to Europe for the first time to bring the gospel to European people. Antioch became a center of the church in its own right. And so Jerusalem, you know, it's hard when you're at the center of things and suddenly you're not anymore. And this was a shift that began to happen in the church. And that shift has never actually stopped The center of God's activity in the world has continued to shift and continued to be on the move. Actually, I have a graphic to look at together to illustrate some of this. So this is a map. So if you kind of put a dot for every Christian in the world and where they are and looked for sort of the median point of the kind of average, where the average Christian is in the world today, it starts at the beginning of the church around year 30 in Jerusalem. That's kind of where they all were. In our passage today in Antioch, the, the center of the church really begins to move for the first time, starts to head north. Antioch is in Syria, near Turkey. Starts to move, and it has continued to be on the move ever since to this very day. A couple of observations I think are interesting about this map. One, it takes a good thousand years before the center of Christianity is in Europe. So any notion that this is kind of a Western thing or white religion is completely historically inaccurate. But eventually it did kind of shift westward a bit, but look at where it is now. It's in the country of Mali, and if you notice kind of just where the center of the Christian church is, it ain't here. It's not right here. You know, as much as in North America we like to think we're the center of of everything... We are not the center of God's activity in the world. And we need to know that and be clear on that. Now, we are part of God's activity in the world. He's not looking to leave us out of it or leave us behind. But we are not at the center. Not at all. And look where it's trending. Kind of trending away from North America, actually, southward and eastward. And again, God's not leaving us behind or leaving us out, but he is at work powerfully in other places. We need to know that. God's church has always been shifting demographically and geographically. Just a few examples of what that shift looks like these days. Right now, on a a given Sunday, there's actually 15 times as many people worshiping in Anglican churches in Nigeria as there are in England. And the Anglican church is the Church of England, in case you didn't know. But it actually does not look very English at the moment worldwide. Right now, there are over 100 million Christians in China, more than the entire population of most nations on earth. And that was not always the case. In a f- couple months, some of our college students will be going to the Urbana Missions Convention put on by InterVarsity. Urbana was started in the 1940s as a way of mobilizing young North American students to, to take the gospel to other, other nations, other, other countries. But it has become not just a one-way thing. Urbana in recent years is a very collaborative global global representation. Some of our keynote speakers the last few years at Urbana have been from Sri Lanka, from Kenya, from China. We've heard testimonies from Iranian church planters. We've heard of an Italian or a Brazilian missionary in Italy taking the gospel to Europe. Um, and we've heard rousing preaching from a white pastor from Alabama. Takes it all. It's an interdependent global church. And if you want to learn what God's up to in the world, you've got to learn from all over the place not just from North America, not just from our fancy seminaries, but from some places also where the church is actually growing, which is largely elsewhere. It's a shifting church. In New England, where we are 200 years ago, was a hotbed of missionary activity. It was brash, young, faith-filled college students who got a vision from God to take the grace of Jesus to, to places that hadn't heard it before, started a catalytic missionary movement out of New England, and there was a lot of inertia in the established church at the time. I was not really thrilled about this, but these brash young students really caught a vision from God, took the gospel to a lot of different countries. Well, nowadays, there are people coming from some of those very same countries to New England to share the gospel. Recently, I've met people from Venezuela, from Brazil, from Malawi, from South Korea, from India, from Ghana, all of whom who have traveled to the United States with a purpose of being missionaries a shifting church, and it always has been, continues to be. A little closer to home, now did you know that in the mid-1800s, there was a massive revival in Sweden, big revival, tons of people came to faith, there was great passion for Jesus and for the gospel in Sweden, and that happened right before a major wave of immigration from Sweden to the United States, and a pretty large settlement here in Worcester. And some of you may know, we're currently sitting in a church that was built in the late 1800s by Swedish immigrants. And when some of us go to worship in a couple of weeks at Greenwood Street, we'll be worshiping in a church that was built in the late 1800s by Swedish immigrants. Powerful move of God. And thank God for the immigrants. Not just the Swedes 100 years ago. Thank God for the immigrants in our city right now. And thank God for the churches that they're bringing. Where would the body of Christ in Worcester be without the movement of people by the Holy Spirit, the movement of God and the immigrants that He has brought. We've seen some really cool things open up spiritually in, in Worcester in recent years. I believe that. And honestly, I, I, don't really, I, I think a large part of it might be the immigrant churches that are really praying for this city. There are churches planted by Ghanaian pastors who stay up through the night on a regular basis crying out to God for this land. Thank God for how he moves people and how he is shifting his church and how we get to somehow be a part of it. I hope that both here at Belmont Street and at Greenwood Street, a hundred years from now, people are still worshiping Jesus. That would be awesome. I can guarantee you that the demographic makeup of who would be doing that will be drastically different than it is now. And I don't know if Journey's name would really be on either of those spaces, and honestly, I could really care less as long as the name of Jesus is honored there and that he's the one being worshipped. So guys, the church is always shifting, always has been and continues to be to this day. We are part of a shifting church, both globally, and we feel the effects of that and we benefit from that now, but also our little body here, the Journey Community Church, has been a shifting church that's kind of been in a constant state of change since it started eight years ago. Begun eight years ago, the dream of a a little group of middle-class white people from the suburbs with a vision from God to start a city in Worcester, ethnically diverse and intergenerational, with longtime believers and newcomers to faith. Well, that has begun to take shape, but as it has, that has meant great changes in a short amount of time. As we truly do become more ethnically diverse, as we do reflect more of the socioeconomic diversity of Worcester, as we do become truly intergenerational with more seniors and more children and everyone in between. Things are changing. Things are shifting. We've changed geographically from renting space, meeting in a school, to meeting here, and then in a couple weeks, going to multi-site. That is, will be, a big shift for us. that's part of the flow, I think, of how God has created this church, and it's part of the flow of what he's been doing in history, going all the way back to Antioch in that time. So how do we respond, though, in the face of a shifting church? I want to propose one main word for how we ought to respond, and that is blessing. To be people who bless one another and bless what God is doing in the face of shifting and change. The church hasn't always gotten this right, But in Antioch, we see some beautiful examples of blessing. I'm going to share four four types. One, at Antioch, we see the established blessing the new. The established thing blessing the new thing. The church at Jerusalem blessing this young, upstart, new thing that God was doing at Antioch among the Greeks. Now, the Jewish church didn't always do a great job embracing their non-Jewish counterparts. But here at Antioch, they really did. They sent Barnabas... They sent one of their best, one of their most beloved leaders, and they shared him. They sent him to this church, and they couldn't have picked a better guy. Barnabas shows up first in Acts chapter 4. We realize his name is actually Joseph, but they nicknamed him Barnabas, meaning son of encouragement. He was such an encouraging guy, they had to give him a whole new name. And they sent him to Antioch, and what did he do? He encouraged them. It's good they sent him. You know, Someone else might have been a little more skeptical, a little more standoffish, or a little more just frozen with the discomfort of being around people who are different from them. But Barnabas could go in and say, this is awesome. I love you guys. Welcome to the fold. This is of God. Keep it up. We need people who encourage and bless the new thing among us. I can't tell you how awesome it is. One of the things I love most about the journey is this is a place where some really established senior followers of Jesus are genuinely excited to have young people around. And you don't just put up with them or tolerate them or realize pragmatically if the church is going to continue, we've got to have some young people, but you're genuinely thrilled to have young people around. You bless what God is doing in them. You like them, and, and you're excited. You know, these millennials and Gen Z with their different ways of doing things than you ever knew before, but there's people in this church who submit and sit under the leadership of people half their age or less at times, and receive that as a good gift from God. That is an awesome thing, and it's not a given in the church or in society. I appreciate those of you who do that. But it doesn't just go one way now. At Antioch, we also see the new blessing the established. It goes both ways. This new church at Antioch is looking to bless the church back in Jerusalem, to not just cut themselves off and think they're so great now they don't need them anymore or they can, they've figured it all out, They hear word that there's going to be a famine in the whole Roman world, and that includes Antioch. This famine is really going to affect them, but the first thing they do, their first response, collect some resources and send it to the church in Jerusalem, a church that was much less well-off than they were. They're looking to bless back. They're not looking to just be independent and leave the others behind. And one of the other things I love about being in this church is this is a church where young people are willing to learn from those who are quite a bit older than them. to listen to voices their parents' age. And again, that's not a given in our society or in the church. The established blesses the new, the new blesses the established. Antioch really did become a thing, a a kind of a, a hot church, if you will. It was trending. But in the face of that, the point is not to just become independent, to not forget where you came from, to not forget your roots. And we are still a young church, eight years old. Listen, we're standing on the shoulders of some spiritual giants in Antioch, Sweden, and Worcester, throughout many years, many centuries. And as we head into a new neighborhood, Quinsigamon Village, I tell you, it would be the height of arrogance to think that we're somehow bringing Jesus there. He's already there. He has been there a long time. And the space that we're going to worship in on Greenwood Street has been a place where God's name has been honored for well over 100 years we're just stepping in as the latest chapter in what God is doing there. And we need to bless what's established. There's a lot of churches there already, you know, some of them immigrant churches who 100 years from now could really prove to be the ones that were most significant in what God was doing at this time in this place. Whatever we do, wherever he sends us, our job is really just to bless. So let's be blessers. Third type of blessing we see at Antioch is the blessing of emerging leadership. Blessing of emerging leadership. Barnabas, is a a really good leader, really gifted, really experienced, established, and so they send him to Antioch because he's needed there. But what's the first thing he does? He goes and he finds Saul, this young, upstart, rough-around-the-edges new leader, and he takes him with him. Barnabas doesn't say, oh, well, you you really need me. Let me be at the center of everything. First thing he does, he finds Saul. Saul, again, was rough-around-the-edges. The last experience he had in public ministry was... Caused so much chaos that they kind of kicked him out of town. But Barnabas looks at him and says, oh, this is my guy. I'm going to bring him in, and he's going to be my partner in this. And from this point on, for the rest of Acts, Barnabas just kind of slowly disappears into the background. He's not at the center. Saul becomes the apostle Paul, the great apostle who takes the gospel to many nations, who ends up writing half the New Testament and I thank God for Barnabas, who didn't have the ego, uh, but stepped aside and, and blessed this new and emerging leader. It's a beautiful thing. He knew that what God wanted to do in Antioch and in the world was far bigger than himself. He took himself out of the center and blessed new leaders. So another thing I love about this church is a place where emerging leadership has often been blessed and empowered. I really appreciate our senior pastor, Tom, and how and he's an experienced pastor, been doing this a while, and and he's good at it. He's a good teacher of God's Word. He's a good worship leader, as we've experienced this morning. He doesn't feel the need to just do it all. He's been extremely generous with the teaching ministry at this church, often empowering and turning things over to people far less experienced than himself. And he has turned over the leadership of our, our worship ministry So Malia, someone much younger than him in faith and much younger in years, young enough to be his daughter, but he has noticed that actually Malia is the one that God has gifted and anointed and called to this for this time and place. It's a beautiful thing, and I think this really sets us up well to go to multiple sites, because all this stuff is shared. Our teaching ministry is shared. Our worship ministry is shared. You've experienced that. It's not all about one person or two people, and so wherever you worship, on a Saturday or Sunday at The Journey, it's not about the personality, it's about the preaching of God's word and the worship of Jesus, not about the people up front. (laughs) And you know, that's not a given in the church. I appreciate that Tom is a good man in that way, like Barnabas. And I think going to multi-sites is a great opportunity for more and more leadership to emerge, as it should be, because God gifts all of his people with gifts. And abilities and resources, not just a select few. And so, as we as we branch out, it's a chance for more and more people to rise up into leadership and ministry. I think that's great. Now, the fourth type of blessing in Antioch, we just see people looking to bless with whatever resources they have. Resources being used to bless other people and. People have different resources, so the church in Jerusalem has a lot of experience, a lot of spiritual heritage, some really gifted leaders like Barnabas, like these prophets who are gifted at hearing from God. They're sent to Antioch to help these people understand more about who God is and what he's saying. The church at Antioch has a lot more material resources. Antioch was a more well-off, prominent city at that time than Jerusalem, and they share what they have. They share their material resources. Eventually, Antioch has quite a few spiritual resources of its own, and what do they do? They send Barnabas and Saul away to take the gospel to Europe. No one is just holding on to what they have and hoarding it for themselves. Whatever people have here in this passage, they're using to give and to send and to bless other people. It's one of the things I love about the journey. It's a generous church. At our best, we take what we have, whether it's financial resources, to help us acquire a church building, whether it's gifts and skills to help us refurbish a church building, whether it's the professions and the different places that God has placed us all throughout the city, having an eye for how we can use those to bless other people. And when we're at our best, we're looking to use whatever God has given us to be a blessing to others. So now, as we are part of a a shifting church and at a sort of defining moment of our own, what will it look like for us to be people who bless, who get on board and continue to be excited about what God is doing among us? The church at its best, the journey at its best, is a church that, that blesses in all of these ways. Old blessing the new, new blessing the old, emerging leaders, using what we have. The church, at Antioch, the church in Acts didn't always get this right, They didn't always get it right. The the Jewish church did not always get excited about welcoming new people in. The non-Jewish church historically has really failed many times to honor our Jewish roots. But at this defining moment in church history, they got so much of it right and they blessed. And we haven't always gotten all this right either journey. But at this defining moment, what will it look like to bless? As we go to multiple sites, this is kind of a a big shift and a defining moment for us. And it actually means that next week is the last time that we will all worship here at Belmont Street. It's the final time next week that journey worship happens all here in this one place. Things will shift. I, for one, am about as excited as anybody about this, but as it becomes imminent and real, I do feel my own sense of inertia, my own sense of wanting to hold on to what's going on, what we have here. Partly, you know, I'll be shifting between both sites in my, in my role. I'm not really sure what that's going to mean for our rhythm as a family. But honestly, the big thing is just a, a sense of loss in that the last three years, honestly, worshiping here in this space every week with you all has been the best experience of church that I've ever had in my life. And that's going to change. With that comes a bit of a sense of uncertainty and loss. But I've had to ask myself this week, okay, well, How did it get to be so good for me? How did we get here? It came by people being willing to step into uncertainty, step into risk, and to shift with God, and to move with God as his church has been moving. Swedish people way back in the day. People from the suburbs with a heart for Worcester. And honestly, I think the most profound act of blessing in the history of journey was done not by people who were part of the journey at the time, but by the people of Crossroads Church, formerly Belmont Street Baptist, formerly the first Swedish Baptist Church of Worcester. And in 2015, the the people of Crossroads really sought God and discerned how He was moving, how He was shifting in the city. As they were custodians of this space, they wanted it to, to bear the name of Jesus more than anything else. And suddenly realized that what God was asking them to do was actually to give this space to this young, upstart, new church up the road called The Journey. You better believe that came at some personal cost to the people who did that and stepped into some uncertainty and a lot of change. Man, I thank you guys who did that. Because let's have one more, one more show of hands. Who of you has encountered God in some way here in this space in the last three years. Yeah. That's what it was all about. That's what it's all about. And there's a whole lot more hands out there in Worcester and the surrounding area who, if we ask that question five years from now, need to go up, who God wants to share his grace with. And it's going to happen as we continue to move with him to new things, to new spaces, to new places. Even the thing that feels really established and, and secure and settled about our experience of church here is part of a shifting tide and work of the Holy Spirit and people being willing to go with God into what he's doing at critical, defining moments. And we're at one of them now, and we're trusting that's going to lead to great numbers of people being able to experience the grace of Jesus. So let's step into it with him, shall we? Let me pray. God, thank you for all you've done over many years and many places and many people's faithfulness to get us to the point where we can encounter you today as we do and where we do. Lord, thank you that even as the church moves and shifts and and maybe we're not always at the center of things, that you, you do want us to be a part of things. Thank you for your invitation to move with you Thank you for the particular ways you're moving in our city, in our church right now. Lord, help us to be people who bless what you're doing, who honor those who've come before us, who bless the new things that you do that we can't even anticipate yet, who bless the leaders that you want to bring our way, and who use all that you've given us to be a blessing to those around us. Make us blessers, Lord. You've blessed us so richly. We thank you for the chance to be part of the story that you're writing in our time in our city. In Jesus' name, amen.